Hey, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So as of today, we're going to sort of get back to my roots a little bit. I started this podcast originally as the One Verse Podcast, and the goal was to sort of teach through books of the Bible. For the past couple months, almost even a year or so, I've been doing passages from the work I'm doing in my Gospel Dictionary online course. Uh, but as of today, I want to get back to working through books of the Bible. I think that the listeners prefer that, and I know I definitely do. Uh, as a pastor and a teacher, I have always preferred teaching through books of the Bible. I think that makes the most sense and also helps us better understand the flow and message of Scripture. Also helps me avoid passages that I want to avoid. <laughs> uh, after teaching through books of the Bible, you come to a text you uh, have difficulty with. Well, you're forced to understand it, study it, and uh, seek to explain it. So that's where we're headed. Now, the difficulty is I uh, have extremely limited time uh, in uh, writing and research now, much less than I used to. So what I'm going to do is teach through a book of the Bible, which I've already written on and already studied I just haven't published, and that's going to be the book of Ephesians. It's going to take us a while, uh, but uh, I will be teaching through the book of Ephesians. And if you want to sort of look ahead and get an idea for where we're headed in these studies, then uh, you can go to my website, redeeminggod.com, click on Sermons, find the book of Ephesians there, and all of the texts are there. Uh, Because all of the text is already on my website, I will not be putting manuscripts up of the podcast episodes on my blog. It will mostly just be sort of uh, some brief notes of what we talk about. Okay, so that's where we're headed. I will still be doing work on my Gospel Dictionary online course. It's just I won't be teaching it in the podcast. And uh, to get those lessons and the teachings, of course, you can always do that by joining the discipleship group at redeeminggod.com slash join. Okay, so even though we're still doing e, uh, going to return to teaching through books of the Bible, we'll be doing Ephesians, I also want to include sort of the other two sections of the podcast, which is sort of a, a brief discussion of current events and also discussing a, a, a letter from a reader, okay, or listener. So uh, today we will be looking at uh, talking a little bit more about the border crisis and specifically immigration and sort of our view on immigration, how we should view this biblically and respond to it uh, like Jesus Christ would. Okay, then uh, we're going to discuss a, um, uh, uh, an email. Actually, it was a Facebook message from a reader, basically about how to understand the violence of God in Scripture and uh, uh, some passages, difficulty pass- difficult passages there in-, in relation to, for example, Jesus cleansing the temple, that sort of a thing. Okay. Uh, And then finally, we will begin with our study of Ephesians. Today, we're going to be looking at, used to be the One Verse podcast, we'll be looking at Ephesians (laughs) 1.1. It will be slow going through Ephesians because we'll be basically going fairly slow, but I also like to dive deep into these verses, and that's how we do it here on the Redeeming God podcast. So let's dive into our brief discussion today about immigration and the border at our, uh, uh, the crisis at our border. Look, um, I don't know what your views are on immigration. I think most people, though, are pro-immigration, okay? And I know that in the media, the media says that Democrats love immigrants and Republicans hate immigrants. That is fake news, okay? It is not true. 
And I, they loved it to play out of context various things from uh, President Trump about uh, murderers and thieves and rapists and so on coming across our border. Uh, he said that in the context about some people were uh, performing those uh, evil behaviors, but others are good people. And um, so we need to make sure that we only have the good people come across and not the criminals. I think everybody can agree with that. When we have open borders, we don't know who's who. And especially right now, as our country is trying to recover from the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, we don't. There's no testing on the border, and we don't know who has COVID and who doesn't. It's crazy that we are testing and uh, restricting people getting on airplanes unless they're wearing masks, uh, or you know, shutting down restaurants and hotels and music venues and concerts and parks and all sorts of things for American citizens. Uh, and they're even talking about not allowing travel across state lines or even travel uh, on airplanes or or whatever unless you have a vaccine ID. Uh, and yet they're they're not testing some of the immigrants coming across the border, who, many of whom are certain to have uh, uh, the COVID uh, virus. Okay, so anyway, uh, th- there's all sorts of concerns with that, and it's a big political issue. So how do we deal with this? Look, again, the, the, the bottom line is everybody is pro-immigrant. I love immigrants. My ancestors were immigrants. Uh, if you're here in the United States and you are not a pure-blooded Native American, then that means your ancestors were immigrants as well. Okay, so uh, immigration is part of world history. Every country has a form of immigration. There's nothing wrong with immigration. We love immigration. Immigration is what makes America great. Uh, One of the things, anyway. Okay, and and so uh, everybody is pro-immigration. The question is how and why, and that is the important question. Uh, And I think one of the things that um, we need to understand is that you can't trust politicians uh, from either side of the aisle and what they say about immigration. Uh, Politicians, as we have seen, have ulterior motives for immigration. I am convinced that the vast majority of politicians uh, in D.C. who are pro-immigrant, really what they want is more people to vote for them. All right? Uh, They don't really care about the lifestyle, the livelihoods, the health, or the the, the ability of immigrants to get jobs or anything like that. The vast majority of politicians in D.C., they want more people to vote for them. And they figure if they can get more people in here, more immigrants in here, uh, and make them dependent on the government for welfare checks and for um, you know all the benefits that they can receive here in the United States, that those people will then become dependent on the government and will continue to vote for government handouts and government payouts and government checks and government benefits. And uh, that puts keeps those politicians in power for longer. So what the politicians really care about is not the immigrants, but that keeping themselves in power. Okay, is that a reason to have immigration? It is not, because it does not help the immigrants. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, what we should be most concerned about is what is best for the immigrant, what is best for the poor and the needy, not just in our communities, not just in our country, but around the entire world. That's the question, isn't it? Uh, And so the question shouldn't be, how can we get more immigrants here to the United States? The question should actually be, is that best for them? What is best for the poor and needy around, the, around our own country and around the world? 
Okay, if we want to help the poor and needy, uh, there's many ways to do it other than inviting them all to come here, uh, to come to our country. In fact, I don't know if you've ever gone and talked to some of these immigrants. I have. Uh, and if you haven't, before you take a position on immigration, I encourage you to go do this. Go talk to some of these immigrants and ask them, why did you come to the United States? What are you here for? What are you seeking? What do you want? What are your goals? And you will hear them say that they have goals. They want jobs. They want to provide for their family. Lots of them, most of them have left family back in Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras or wherever it is they're coming from. And so they come here because they are told that it's easier to find a job here. And then a lot of them will send that money back home. So what are they here for? They're here for income, and they want to support their family, their extended family, back home. There's nothing wrong with that, right? All of us, uh, God wants us all to support, to work hard and support our families. The problem is, as more and more uh, immigrants come here, the harder it is for them to find good-paying jobs, and therefore the harder it is for them to send money overseas. Uh, the more and more immigrants we have, it drives down wages, and it drives up the unemployment rate, uh, which is not good for anybody, immigrants or citizens of the United States. And it just creates a big disaster. The other problem, as I've mentioned last week and elsewhere, is that since we don't have any really way of knowing who's coming into the United States with these open borders that, that Biden has uh, caused over the last two months uh, during his presidency, uh, inviting everybody to come, and hundreds of thousands are pouring across every month, um, then we're allowing human smuggling and human trafficking and child trafficking and all sorts of uh, bad actors to come into our country uh, with drugs and uh, criminal activities. Uh, they're not, obviously not all the immigrants are this way, um, probably a relatively small percentage, but it, it creates a disaster, humanitarian crisis that is not good for them, not good for our country, not good for the world. Okay, so the question is, what can we do? Look, first thing is you need to stop listening to the politicians, stop listening to the news, go out and talk to some of these immigrants, as I've done, to find out what they want, what would be best for them, what they need. And in when I have done this, I have found that 100% of them, 100% of the ones I have talked to, have said that if given the choice, they would have preferred to stay in their home country where they grew up, where they lived, where their family and friends are, if given the choice. And of course, what would have made that possible? If they'd been able to find jobs in their own country. They don't necessarily want to come to America. Uh, I mean, in, in a sense, everybody loves America. Everybody looks up to America. But that's part of because of the promise that uh, America holds out to so many people. Land of opportunity. Uh, but it's becoming less and less so. And so lots of people leave their home and their family to come here to the United States thinking they're going to find jobs, and they don't. They get stuck on the government handouts. They get stuck in homeless camps. They get stuck in uh, these uh, quote-unquote cages, holding facilities on the southern border, or all sorts of things uh, that are bad for them. Okay, And, and so uh, this promise of America as a land of the free, land of opportunity, is, is, is quickly fading, not only for American citizens, but also for the immigrants who come here. And so the, the, what we need to do then is stop listening to the sob stories of the politicians because all they want is power for themselves, to stay in power, to get votes, and, and start listening to the needs of the immigrants. And maybe there are ways 
not maybe, obviously there are ways, where the United States and other first world countries around the world can do things to help third world countries develop so that they can produce jobs in their own communities, in their own cities, in their own countries. Uh, And that way, the people who want to stay where they are can stay where they are and find good jobs and support themselves and their children and their wives and their families, okay, and their husbands even. Uh, And uh, then that is better for them. It's better for us. It's better for the whole world. Uh, as as peace and prosperity spreads upon the entire earth, okay? Uh, and in fact, that is the biblical approach. Uh, I think one of the problems in Christianity today and the whole immigration process or problem uh, or crisis, however you want to phrase it, is that lots of churches are still adopting sort of this uh, come-and-see sort of approach, which... Uh, you see in churches, okay, so rather than go out and help people where they're at, in many churches have this approach where, look, you want God involved in your life? Well, you need to come to our Sunday morning service. You need to hear what the, the pastor has to say. You need to, 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 to sing songs and pray here inside these four square walls of the building. And we adopt the same approach in immigration. Oh, you want a job? You want to get help? You want health benefits? You want better education for your, your students? Uh, great, wonderful. Those are good things. Come here and get them. The same approach that many people, many Christians have in regarding to evangelism and discipleship in our communities. But the biblical approach is the opposite. Jesus says, go in Matthew 28. Okay, go and make disciples. Uh, Go and help others, teaching them, okay, to observe all that I commanded you, and so on. Okay, that is the method of Jesus. Not come and see, but go and tell. So the churches, we can't depend on D.C. We can't depend on the politicians to go and do what is needed to help the poor and the needy around the world. The churches need to take the role here, need to take leadership. It's our responsibility to go and uh, come up with creative ways to help the poor and the needy in other communities to rise up, to get jobs, to help their economy, to to, to bring accountability to their governments and to their elected or non-elected officials, okay, to create more peaceful situations in these other countries so that the people who, who are born and raised and lived there can find plenty of opportunity and prosperity and health options right where they live. And they don't, don't need to abandon their families or abandon their lands and, and, and come to go to some other country as an immigrant. All right. So uh, that is the best approach here. And I think that with some Holy Spirit inspired creativity, the church can actually lead the way in this regard. And look, if you want to, if, if you're one of the people who just say, let's open our borders and accept all immigrants here to the United States, uh, I disagree with that opinion. I think that it is not the best way to approach this. But if, if that's your view, I'm not going to condemn you too much for it. What I would say, and I'm not, not going to condemn you at all, I understand the heart for the masses, okay, very important. But I would say, I would encourage you, I would invite you to put your money where your mouth is. And if you, if you are all on board with uh, unlimited numbers of immigrants uh, who have not been screened in any way for health reasons or for criminal behavior, uh, if, if you want them to come to the United States because we can help them here, look, uh, before you tell other communities to welcome immigrants into their communities, uh, 
why don't you welcome them into your own house? Why don't you set up uh, rooms in your church building for immigrants, unlimited number of immigrants to come live in your in your church or in your house, to set up tents in your yard to, to live and sleep there, and you welcome them in for showers and food uh, and that sort of a thing, okay? Uh, before, the, sort of the principles of the kingdom of God, which I'm teaching about in my Gospel Dictionary online course, is before you look out, one of the principles, is before you look out to the world and look for signs of the kingdom of God out there, you need to make sure the kingdom of God is growing and developing in your own heart, in your own house, and in your own life. And so uh, helping the poor and needy in the world is definitely an aspect of the kingdom of God in our midst. But before we call on uh, the cities along our southern border and Texas and so on to, to just you know, accept all of the immigrants that come across, why don't you accept some into your own house and into your own church building? And there, in that way, put your money where your mouth is, in a sense, and apply the truths to yourself that you want other neighborhoods and other communities applied to them. Um, and, 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 and don't screen these people for crime, and don't screen them for health, healthy behaviors or anything like that. Just willy-nilly, open it up and say, anybody who wants to can come on in. All right, and if you're not willing to do that in your own house, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your own literally front yard or backyard, uh, then I don't think you have any right to be asking other communities elsewhere to be doing this either. Okay? So let's be consistent and um, try to uh, think about how Jesus would respond to the needs of the world. And uh, he sent out his disciples, and he, he called us to go out as well to help them where they're at with the needs they have where they're at. And I think that is the best approach for immigration and for helping the needy people uh, around the world and and also in our own community. Obviously, there's a lot more involved here that we could say, but that's sort of my thoughts on immigration. I'm pro-immigration, but uh, more than that, I'm pro-world, helping the world and the and the poor and needy wherever they are at. And I think with uh, the whole, the church can lead the way in showing the governments the. Um, the foolish governments of our world on how this uh, can happen. Okay, so that's a little brief discussion of uh, uh, immigration. <laughs> uh, we're moving into the mailbag section of our podcast, and if you recognize that sound, that is from Angry Birds. That the that that game you could used to play on your phone or your iPad or whatever. Uh, my kids used to love it years ago. In fact, I loved it too. But, um, or not Angry Birds. Was that Angry Birds? I think it was. Yeah. Um, oh, Worms, maybe. Anyway, I can't remember the game it was. But uh, <laughs> my mind is a little hazy on that. So uh, in, in I had a reader. In fact, uh, it was actually a, a member of my discipleship group in the Facebook group. Ask me about the violence of God. And how we can understand some of the violent portions of God in the Old Testament. Um, you know, if God is not violent, and that's what I claim in my book, uh, The Atonement of God, and also in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, then how do we understand these passages in, in the Old Testament where it portrays God as being violent? And also, how do we understand passages like, for example, Jesus cleansing the temple uh, with a whip? And that seems to be pretty violent. There's other examples as well. 
And um, it, it's a big question. So uh, before I even try to answer that, let me just say this brief answer will not be satisfactory. I do, I'm planning to, in fact, it's half written. I have a book, which I've half written, which I want to, in which I want to tackle all of these passages and texts and provide a good explanation uh, for how to understand these passages. The bottom line principle, which I will defend and present in that book, is that uh, lots of people read the Bible wrong. Okay, lots of people think that the Bible is uh, written, uh, and I'm speaking primarily of the Old Testament here, uh, but, but lots of people think that the Bible is written to show us what God is like, to reveal God to us. And I believe that that is wrong. I believe that when uh, James says that the Bible is, you know, a mirror that we look into to, to see our face, and uh, then lots of people go away forgetting what they've seen, that that's exactly how lots of people fail to read the Bible. They, they don't realize that the Bible is a mirror in which we see not the face of God, but our own face. So my main contention, my main belief and this changes the way you read the entire Bible, and especially all the violent portions of the Old Testament, that, that those portions of Scripture do not reveal God to us, do not show us the face of God, do not show us how God behaves or what God is like, uh, but instead, they reveal us to us. They don't reveal God to us, they reveal us to us. We think, well, I don't need to know what I'm like, I know what I'm like. No, you don't. And that's why one of the reasons, primary reasons, the Bible was written, because we don't know what we are like. We are self-deceived, all right? Um, and, and so the Bible, large sections of the Bible, was written to show us what we are really like, okay? So that we can look into Scripture and see our face in the mirror and be shocked and horrified by it, and then turn away, not forgetting what we have, been seen, what we have seen, but changing it, okay? And so that is sort of the, the basic view uh, argument I will be presenting in this book if I can finally ever get it done. Um, I'm trying to finish the Gospel Dictionary online course first, and then after that I will go to uh, writing this book and teaching on it in, in my online um, discipleship group. Uh, but but that's uh, that's sort of the general approach I take to all of the violent passages in Scripture. Now, uh, what about and Jesus also, by the way, Jesus does reveal God to us. That's one of the reasons, primary reasons, we know that God is not violent, because Jesus was not ever violent. Uh, except, what about this passage where he goes into the temple and turns over the tables and gets a whip, and he's lashing about with his whip? That seems pretty violent, doesn't it? Well, uh, in a way it does, but it also is not. Uh, first, when you read those passages carefully, it's very evident quickly that Jesus never harms a human being or an animal with his whip, okay? He's not hurting anybody. The whip was there to startle the animals and scare them off and free them so that the birds flew away and the, the sheep and so uh, sheep and other uh, uh, sacrificial animals that were there uh, uh, ran away. That was, the, that was the purpose of the whip. It was to send them off into freedom, Okay, and uh, the whip was not used on any human being or even on any of the animals to harm them. Uh, what about the turning over the tables? Um, again, maybe some tables and stuff, stuff were damaged. I do not know, but uh, Jesus did not burn the building down. He didn't didn't uh, topple the walls. He didn't 
they didn't have windows exactly, but uh, he didn't, you know, go break any windows. The reason I'm talking about this, he definitely didn't steal any of the money. He didn't loot the temple. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it was very common this past year during all of the violent riots that took place in various cities, Minneapolis, especially in Portland and Seattle, a little bit in, in some in D.C., in other places uh, around the country, numerous other places uh, with Antifa and uh, the BLM groups, uh, they would say, well, people weren't harmed. Of course, people were harmed. There are lots of people who got killed in those riots. But they say, you know, people, uh, it's okay for them to loot uh, and burn the buildings. Um, and I even saw Christians defend this, say, well, Jesus did that when he was in the temple. No, he didn't. Okay, he did not harm any human being or animal. Uh, he did not destroy the building or ruin um, or, or steal any of their money. Okay, in a lot of these riots, they would destroy the buildings and then they would also go into the buildings and, and loot them, steal everything. Okay, this was not Christ-like behavior. This Jesus would not have been involved in this. He would not have condoned it. Um, uh, that also is violent behavior. All right, these were not mostly peaceful protests. Um, there was lots of violence involved, and it was not Christ-like. So anyway, did Jesus cleanse the temple? Yes, he did. But he did not harm anybody. He did not harm any animals. Uh, he turned over the tables, yes, but that was to scatter all the coins and basically uh, ruin the work of, of stealing that the religious leaders were doing. Uh, hint, hint, religious leaders. Uh, be careful what you're doing with your tithes and offerings and how you go about receiving them. Uh, don't guilt people into it. Don't say God is more pleased if they give more. You're, you're falling into the same trap as these religious leaders that Jesus condemned. Uh, and Jesus didn't destroy the building. He didn't steal any of the money. He didn't loot the temple courtyard. Nothing. Okay. So Jesus was just trying to stop the practice, which was uh, of, of stealing from uh, the poor in that community as they came to try to worship God and do what these religious leaders were saying they needed to do in order to God have God love them and accept them and forgive them. Okay. They had turned this house of prayer into a den of thieves. And uh, lots of politics, lots of religious practices, even in Christianity, is nothing more than a den of thieves today. And Jesus has similar attitudes and behaviors and uh, views towards all of our den of thieves today as well. So it's a very sobering passage, but I would say uh, that this is not an example of violence from Jesus for, for some of the reasons I have presented. Now, again, in that book I have coming out, I will have a longer explanation as well. So I'm sorry to tease that, but uh, you're going to have to wait. It's going to be a year at least before I, I, I get to that because I'm finishing the Gospel Dictionary online course. Okay, so with that in mind, let's turn to our uh, scripture study today. So as I indicated at the beginning of today's podcast, I'm uh, returning to my roots and deciding to teach through a book of the Bible. We're going to teach through Ephesians Six chapters long, quite a few number of verses, so it's going to take a while to work through it, but that's okay. Um, we're going to be diving deep and learning a lot about it. Today we're going to be looking at just Ephesians 1.1, which says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, what is in there? Well, one of the reasons I'm only doing one verse today is because I also want to give an introduction, sort of an overview of the book of Ephesians. 
and then we'll look at this one verse. But Ephesians is six chapters long, and I really like sort of the organization that um, some scholars and authors have noted. It was sort of popularized by Watchman Nee. And uh, the book of Ephesians uh, is really sort of divided in half, uh, chapters 1, 2, 3, and chapters 4, 5, and 6, um, uh, sort of the riches and responsibilities. So we can say that chapters 1, 2, 3 are about the riches, uh, the, the blessings uh, that, that, uh, that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about the responsibilities, sort of the duties, uh, how we're supposed to respond, how we're supposed to use, how we're supposed to spend those riches that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And Watchman Nee really pointed out that the book of Ephesians is sort of dominated by three main verbs, sit, walk, stand, okay? So sit is um, chapters 1, 2, 3, a primary verb found throughout these chapters about how we've been seated in heavenly places, how we've been seated with Jesus Christ. Uh, The idea here is ruling and reigning with him. Okay, so we'll be seeing a lot of this as we work through chapters 1, 2, 3. And then walk is how we're supposed to walk. And uh, how we're, you know, the things we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to walk as a Christian. It's about the Christian walk. And really, this is chapters four, five, and half of six. And then the final verb, stand, is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, which is about spiritual warfare, standing our ground again in warfare, standing our ground against the wiles of the devil. That's sort of the main verb there, but it's also, again, standing our ground in spiritual warfare, again, how we're supposed to use, what we're supposed to do with all of those riches and and blessings that we've been given in Jesus Christ, which Paul talked about, writes about in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Okay, so that's a brief overview, and I will be mentioning it again and again and again as we go through these studies on Ephesians. So, uh, with that in mind, let's briefly look at Ephesians 1.1. Paul. Of course, Paul's the author. You know a lot about Paul. Um, He was a religious leader in Judaism, and he persecuted Christians. And then when he, uh, on the road to Damascus, Jesus showed up and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And you know the story. He was blind. And then uh, Ananias, not the one who was, um, not Ananias and Sapphira, a different guy, uh, healed him, healed his eyes, gave his sight back, and, and then Paul uh, went off to Arabia, where he studied Scripture and sort of reframed how he thought about Jesus and how he read Scripture, and then he became an apostle. Okay, so, um, and the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Okay, so uh, one of the things Paul did as he went around uh, teaching is also he would write letters to various churches. In Ephesians is a letter he wrote to the church that he planted in Ephesus. Again, as we go through these studies, I will be uh, uh, telling you a lot more about the situation in Ephesus, what they believed, uh, some of the the, the key factors, the key elements in Ephesus, uh, that it helps explain why Paul writes to them the things that he does. So uh, we will be talking about all of that. So he says, Paul, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. All right, what's an apostle? An apostle, the word apostle is actually a Greek word, apostolos. And so it's not really a translation. It's something that we would call a transliteration. I talk about this again in the Gospel Dictionary Online course with letters or words like the word baptism. Okay, baptism also is not a translation. It's a transliteration. They take the Greek letters, change them into English letters, and uh, that's the word. So, for example, uh, baptism in Greek is uh, baptisma. Okay, you hear it. 
So all they did, it's not a translation. So sometimes it helps us when we come across these transliterated words to translate them instead. Apostle means a sent one, okay? A messenger, one sent with a message. And uh, that's fine. Uh, As long as we understand that's what is viewed by apostle, then I'm okay with that. And apostleship is a spiritual gift. We'll talk about this a lot more in Ephesians 4 when we get there. It's one of the, uh, the, the four sort of foundational gifts of the church. And uh, we'll see when we get there that there are qualifications to be an apostle. I think that there can be apostles today in a very narrow sense, which we might think of as missionaries, because they are ones who are sent with a message. But when it comes to the office, the apostolic office uh, that Paul is referring to here, uh, those do not exist today. Uh, to be uh, an apostle, to, to have the office, the official office, authoritative office of apostle, uh, there are various requirements. For example, one of them was to personally have seen and heard Jesus Christ, um, to have witnessed his resurrection. That's another uh, requirement. Um, and his ascension. Okay, to be an apostle, an official apostle was handpicked by Jesus. That's why Paul says he was one abnormally born. That's in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, 9. Um, so, because he wasn't one of Jesus' disciples following Jesus around during his earthly ministry. Uh, uh, Paul was only handpicked by Jesus after Jesus had died, rose again, and ascended. And yet, all of the requirements to be an apostle, to hold the office of apostle, uh, were, were given to Paul, uh, but sort of in an abnormal way. That's why Paul says he is an apostle, but as one abnormally born. He didn't follow the, the same route that the other apostles did. All right? But uh, those requirements for being apostle, most of them are not possible <laughs> for today. Okay, so we don't have any official apostles today. So I take exception to some of the churches out there that uh, have, you know, the apostolic churches. Uh, I take exception to the Catholic view of apostolic succession. Okay? To, to be an apostle, an official apostle, is to speak authoritatively for God. And I do, since the, I believe the canon, the, the scripture, the books in scripture are closed, I think that Bible speaks authoritatively, and humans today do not. Our, ja- our job, uh, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is to understand scripture and teach the authority of scripture. Okay, no human person can speak authoritatively for God today. That's what we have the Bible for. So that's one of the reasons I, I uh, think that the office of apostle is no longer in use today. The spiritual gift is apostleship, uh, but again, as I just mentioned, uh, it, we would think of them as missionaries. They are not going to speak authoritatively to, to give new divine revelation from God, uh, but they are one sent with a message to another country, to uh, specifically to an unreached people group, to spread the gospel to them. Okay? So, um, he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. So, uh, this is, again, means he was chosen by Christ Jesus. Uh, and it says, by the will of God. So, um, again, this all relates to how he was chosen as an apostle. And um, 
This is not by his own desire. You can't, hey, I want to be an apostle and choose yourself to be one. No, uh, this is by the will of God, chosen by God. And, um, you know, lots of people are jealous of that, or at least would love to do that. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that desire necessarily, but we're going to see in just a minute, uh, and also as we go through the book of Ephesians, that God has chosen you. You've been chosen by Jesus Christ, by the will of God, for something else, for something very important, which only you can do. And as soon as you discover what that is, then you can start living uh, your life purpose, living up to your full potential as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Again, sort of a foreshadowing of where we're headed later in the book of Ephesians. Paul goes on and says, to the saints in Ephesus. Okay, so again, along with some of my criticisms of apostolic succession and apostolic churches and so on, one of the things that those sorts of groups, especially the Catholic Church, uh, makes an error on, I believe, is this idea of sainthood. Okay, in some of these groups, especially Catholics, uh, not everybody is a saint. Only certain people are saints. Okay, uh, a while back, I, I saw that this was uh, after Mother Teresa had passed away, and they were considering her for sainthood, and so they had to go around collecting um, information on uh, what would qualify her to be a saint. And uh, they came up with, let's see, this was in the uh, September fifth, nineteen ninety-eight, so a while ago. This was a year after Mother Teresa died. Um, They came up with 35,000 pages of good deeds. 35,000 pages. Here are the things that qualify Mother Teresa for sainthood. Uh, But of course, even just good deeds wasn't enough for the Catholic Church in order to qualify someone for sainthood. According to the Catholic Church, you also have to have a a couple of uh, miracles, that that, uh, verifiable miracles that you, you performed. Okay, so the the Vatican says um, they did find a couple of these, they think, for Mother Teresa, and so she was sainted. So um, that you need, I guess, at least two verifiable miracles to be a saint. Okay, <laughs> and so there's lots of people in many churches that, oh, the saints, so they pray to the saints, so they venerate the saints, they look up to the saints. Well, guess what? Paul says, and the Bible says, that every Christian is a saint. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You don't need 35,000 pages of good deeds. You don't need two verifiable miracles in order to be a saint. Anyone who has eternal life by believing in Jesus for it is a saint. Okay, so you're a saint. I'm a saint. Everybody's a saint. Not everybody, but all believers are saints. Okay, and and that's an exciting thing to think about because we look up the saints like, oh, look at them. Well, guess what? You're a saint, and so you don't need to venerate them. You don't need to be in awe of them because you're a saint also. Uh, Everybody is a saint. In fact, Paul refers to the saints in Ephesus nine times in his letter. We'll be looking at these as we go through them. And again, in every case, the point is he's referring to all of the Christians, all of the believers in Ephesus are saints. And therefore, you and I are saints also. Paul would refer to us as saints. If we are believers in Jesus, then you and I, then we are saints. Okay? And and it's an important point to make out as we go along. Because I remember what I said. And Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about the blessings and riches that we have in Jesus Christ. And what's one of the very first ones we see right here in Ephesians 1.1? 
Sainthood. <laughs> okay, it means we're sanctified, set apart, holy. And that means that as a believer in Jesus, regardless of what you've done or haven't done, will do, won't do, okay, regardless of whether there's any miracles ascribed to you, verifiable miracles, it doesn't matter. You are a saint in Jesus Christ. And that is a, Paul is an apostle, great, but you are a saint. We're all saints. And it's a beautiful thing, a wonderful promise, a wonderful, great thing. Because one of the things that knowing who we are, uh, it helps us live like who we are. It's very difficult to live like a Christian. And if you, if you think, oh, I'm just a sinner. If you go around thinking, oh, I'm just a sinner, guess what? You're going to be sinning a lot. But if you go around thinking, I'm a saint, I am holy and righteous in Jesus Christ. That thought process is going to help you live like a saint. Uh, live like you should. Live in light of the truth that you are a holy and sanctified and set-apart person for God, that you are supposed to live differently. This is an exciting truth that Paul is presenting here in Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. All right? And then uh, he even says the faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, what is he referring to here? Um, this is sort of the second characteristic. He first was sainthood. Now he's talking about the faithful in Christ Jesus. Oh, uh, this, I think, is slightly different than sainthood. Uh, uh, the, these two terms are not synonymous. To be faithful means to be obedient and to be uh, righteous, not just in your identity, but also in your behavior. Uh, I would say that the faithful in Christ Jesus is another term for the mature. So what Paul is doing here is he's calling you, again, from a position of sainthood to live in a faithful way, in a righteous way. And so this, this is sort of a, a call to live like who we are. That's what Paul is teaching here. Uh, it is possible, of course, to be an unfaithful Christian, isn't it? There's some in uh, Christian circles today that say, no, if you are an unfaithful Christian, then you are not really a Christian. And yet there's numerous examples throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament, of actual Christians, people who are literally saints in Jesus Christ, and yet who did not live faithfully. Okay? Uh, for example, almost all of the Christians in Corinth were unfaithful Christians. They were not living faithfully. Just go read 1 Corinthians to see some of the things they were doing and believing. Uh, not faithful Christians there, and yet... Paul considered them nevertheless as Christians. And the whole point of uh, one of the points of 1 Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthians is, look, you are saints, and yet you are not living faithfully. You're doing all these weird, sinful things. You're, you're believing all these crazy ideas. Stop it and live like who you are. So Paul challenges them to live faithfully, not by saying, and if you don't, you're not really a Christian. No, Paul challenges them to live faithfully because they are saints. They are Christians. They have believed in Jesus. Um, in 1 Timothy, another example, Paul mentions two unfaithful saints by name. He, he names them as Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, again, examples. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.13, uh, Paul tells us to be careful lest we become faithless. Right? It's a warning for Christians, genuine, actual, real saint Christians, that you can become faithless. Okay, so uh, there's a difference between a faithless Christian and a faithful Christian. The goal is to become a faithful Christian, an obedient Christian, someone who follows Jesus on the path of discipleship. If you are a faithless Christian, 
It doesn't mean that you are not really a Christian, that you lost your eternal life, you're going to, you know, you didn't really believe in the first place, or whatever it is you sometimes hear in Christian circles. No, it just means that you need to realize who you are in Jesus, what he's given you in Jesus, all the blessings uh, that you've been blessed with, Ephesians 1, 2, 3, so that you can now live the right way, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, so that you can walk as a Christian, walk in the ways that God has called you to live. Uh, it's a call to discipleship. Um, so, so, so when Paul points out to various people that they are faithless, he's not saying, so you better believe before you go to hell. Okay, no, he's saying, you did believe, you are a saint, you are righteous, so stop living faithless and live faithfully. All right? And um, notice they're faithful in Christ Jesus, by the way. They're not faithful in themselves. Their, their righteousness does not come from themselves. It comes from Jesus Christ. And we'll be talking a lot more about this. This this idea of being in Christ, in Christ Jesus, is a favorite uh, concept for Paul. And he mentions it 164 times in the New Testament. And 36 of those are right here in Ephesians. So that's almost a quarter of those are right here in Ephesians. So it's a prominent theme we find throughout Ephesians. Know who you are in Jesus Christ so that you can live like Jesus Christ wants you to be. Know that you are a saint in Jesus Christ so that you can live faithfully in Jesus Christ. And uh, that is the message we're going to see as we continue all the way through Ephesians. Okay, so that's Ephesians 1.1, a quick introduction, and also sort of a foreshadowing of where we're headed. So you are a saint. Awesome. Are you living like it? Hmm. If you're not, as all of us are not in some ways or another, then guess what? The letter of Ephesians is for you, because we will see over and over, time after time, in the first three chapters, who you are, what you've been blessed with, what you've been given. And as a result, you will be inspired, you will be encouraged to live like who you are, to walk in the ways in which God has called you, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. So join us in this study, and I look forward to where we're headed. Uh, uh, join me next week. We'll be looking at Ephesians 1, 2. <laughs> All right, we'll see you then. Okay, bye.